0: Hello and welcome to Really Well Women. With me, clinical somatic educator Heidi Hadley and naturopathic doctor Sarah Wilson. Really Well Women is here to educate, empower and enhance the health and well-being of women who have many demands and yet they want to take care of themselves from the inside out. Enjoy our podcast as we delve into all areas of health and well-being. So are you ready to find out more? Let's get started. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about sleep and sleep is something that I absolutely love. And from the moment when I worked in neurophysiology, it was one of my areas that I focused on was on sleep disorders. I went to lots of sleep seminars. It was absolutely fascinating. So in today's podcast, we're going to talk about sleep hygiene, because that's a really big, important factor. Um, But before we do, let's just think about sleep because it's very important for all of us. Um, And it is important because it's part of our physical, emotional, and mental health. And interestingly enough, a person. And actually sleeps a third of their life so it's really really important that we do get that sleep and the way that we prepare for sleep is vitally important too and that's something that we're going to discuss today because the quality of our sleep really is the way that it shapes who we are emotionally mentally and physically it sets us up for the day or it can frame our day for a day that's not so productive so with that in mind sarah what would
1: you say um, are your opinions of sleep and what do you see in clinic sleep is such a huge issue. I always tell patients who are experiencing insomnia, so either an inability to fall asleep or stay asleep. Um, I always tell them that sleep deprivation is a form of torture. Okay. <laughs> right? And so from that side of things, when you can't sleep, it can be such a stressful experience. And I'm really fortunate. I had only a small period of it when I was younger and then a very small period when I was pregnant. Um, but for new moms, it's such a huge issue as well. And sometimes when there's postpartum issues, just get allowing a woman to sleep. And whether that's with medication, whether that's naturally, um, whether that's having a, like an overnight night nurse or someone to help sleep in the house can make such a huge difference to their mental health and their physiology. So sleep is is something that is so sought after, whether you are like I said, a new mom, whether you are going through a really big period of stress and can't sleep, whether you have blood sugar imbalances and can't sleep, and we'll talk about this much more in the episode today, um, or whether you're going through perimenopause and menopause, which is another huge area where sleep is affected. It's such a huge part of my practice. And it's something that truly, when you see someone who hasn't been well slept and then they move to that good quality sleep, um, it's such a massive game changer. It
0: is. And at different times in the night, we go through different stages of sleep, don't we? And and I know the big 3 a.m., 4 a.m. where people rise at that point, we're going to discuss that in detail, aren't we? Because there are reasons why people wake at 3 and 4 Mm a.m. And we're going to discuss that and look at how we can create some proactive measures in that way. Um, but with that in mind, just thinking of the sleep stages, there are five stages of sleep. And I just thought it'd be a great opportunity to break them down, discuss what's happening in each of those stages. And then also how what we do within clinic and within our practice, how that can also help to support those stages of sleep. So, I mean, the first stage of sleep, it, it lasts about approximately, I think, about five minutes or so. And it's really that dozing off stage. That's the bit where, you know, sometimes you start dozing off. There might be a little noise and you go, oh. And you suddenly wake up because you're in a very light stage of sleep at that point. But it's at that point that there's a sequence of electrical signals that they start shooting all around our brain. And those are called spindles. And the spindles are really important because they come into their own when we go into stage two of sleep. So when we're in t- stage two, those, those sleep spindles continue to stimulate the brain in a certain manner. And that manner can be involved in preserving um, the recently acquired information that we want to use to really establish the knowledge bank that we have. So it's the long-term memory as well that's really important. And this is interesting because when I'm talking to clients um, here, in clinic and we talk about somatic movement and so for listeners somatic movement is slow mindful movement to release chronically tight muscles so it's that movement practice where we bring in pandiculation to soften and release that tension within the muscles slow down our central nervous system improve the quality of our breath so we get more oxygen to our tissues All those things to create that calming, that homeostasis that we've talked about in previous podcasts. So it's stage two. That's where if we've done somatic movement, that mindful movement practice at nighttime, those spindles, the frequency of them at night increases greatly. So the more that we do something at nighttime, the more that that helps to wind down our central nervous system and prepare us and help with performance the following day. And so during that time, our brain's processing information into our subconscious. And as we know that somatics is all about changing habitual habit, you know, habitual behaviors. So it could be poor habits of posture, the, you know, movement, the way we breathe. So if we've done our somatic movement before bedtime, we're really taking advantage of the actions of the spindles on our subconscious mind to start to prune away and change those old habits for healthy new habits. And so that's why it's a really good one because it consolidates all that information that we've learned at bedtime and we can just allow that to take effect when we're fast asleep.
1: And this is also something that if you are struggling with insomnia, I hope that you just kind of had a moment there of like, oh, this is why I have so much brain fog. This is why my memory is so awful. And this is also something, it's not just insomnia. I see this with sleep apnea all the Mm -hmm. time because people think they're getting asleep. But if you have apnea episodes from very early on in your sleep, then you are going to have issues with consolidating memories and getting all of the the benefits of sleep as well. And sleep Mm -hmm. apnea is such a huge issue right now. It's massive. It is. It is. And and that kind of just takes
0: us into um, stages three and four. And I'm sure you've got quite a bit of input here as well, Sarah, because that's when stages three and four kind of merge into each other. So they flow back and forth a fair bit. Um, And at this point, this is that deeper layer of sleep. And it's at this point that cells produce the majority of their growth hormones. And that's what we need for that repair and maintenance of our muscles and our joints and all those body systems, basically. And so this is a stage where it's all about restoration and recuperation. And that's where we start to help create a really healthy immune system our body temperature becomes more regulated or we develop more of a healthy regulation there and also blood pressure and so the thing is that you know we talked about sleep deprivation being a form of torture it really is and it tortures a lot of our body systems because at this stage if we've got sleep deprivation it's affecting stages three and four that starts to contribute towards low immune function mood disorders Our recovery and our resilience on a daily basis is a lot slower. We find challenging, demanding situations harder to cope with when we're not getting enough sleep in stages three and four.
1: Absolutely. And that's also directly related to cortisol. And so cortisol is something we talked about in the stress episode, but cortisol has what's called a diurnal rhythm. So meaning in the morning, as soon as you open your eyes or before you even open your eyes, your cortisol is rising. So it's telling your body what time of day it is. It's telling your body, okay, it's time to wake up. And so your cortisol awakening response is something that's dictated by the night of sleep you had the night before, it's also dictated by stress and things along those lines. But if you do not have that appropriate jump in your cortisol, then you are going to have poor resilience. But you also have a higher risk of inflammation and autoimmunity. So a lot of research now is being tied to the like that response, and it's essentially, it essentially looks like a big spike on a map. Um, and so that if that spike is not high enough, then that can actually contribute to autoimmunity. So there's so many things that happen in terms of the stress response and in terms of those hormones. Not to mention, we know that there's a hormone called leptin, which essentially is a hormone from your fat cells that tells your brain how much weight is on your body. It's also really critical for hormonal health because we, our body needs to perceive that we have enough fat to store a baby or to carry a baby, right? And so leptin is really affected by nighttime and by growth hormone, so too is ghrelin. So if you find that you don't sleep and then you're hungry the whole next day, ghrelin is a hunger hormone. So if you eat and your body doesn't get told that you're full, then you're going to still feel hungry, hungry, hungry. And that's something that's released overnight during that sleep as well. So it's just it's so fundamental and it's so fascinating how pretty much every process in our body is going to have su- be impacted by sleep. It is. And, and we've, we're being realistic here. Cause we know there
0: are different times in people's lives where because of babies, uh, because of different situations that, you know, sleep is something that gets pretty much affected quite badly. Um, and so when you've got a baby crying, you just have to deal with your baby in the middle of the night, mm-hmm. but we're talking also generally. So when you're, when you're over that period and your baby's starting to sleep better, how we can start to take advantage of getting back into a healthy sleep hygiene uh, routine, But also for the listeners out there that have had their children and they may be in their forties into their fifties, they're looking at the the sort of hormonal side of things with menopause. So that's why this whole um, podcast is looking at all those areas is because even if we have got little children and we're not at that perimenopausal age, we're still looking at how we can prepare our body for that.
1: And what we're going to talk about with, with sleep hygiene after the break is all of the things like I tell people, even though I have a baby who's now thankfully sleeping better through the night. He's up zero or one times, which is amazing. I still need to do the sleep hygiene things. Even when he was waking up constantly, you still need to do the sleep hygiene things to get the melatonin, to get at least some benefits of sleep. And so no one's off the hook here. And when you're going through perimenopause, you're just so much more sensitive. So doing what we're going to talk about is so much more critical even. It is great. So what
0: we'll do after the break, Sarah, we'll just finish off talking about what's happening in that stage three and four of sleep, then look at stage five. And then after that, we'll look at what we can do proactive measures to
1: start to create a healthy sleep hygiene. Sarah here. Do you love what you're learning? Do you want to take your health to the next level? In addition to my book on weight loss resistance, Finally Lose It, I'm developing a number of masterclasses on the evidence-based treatment of some troublesome women's health issues. We are gonna cover hair loss, acne, how to support your body for preconception and through pregnancy, and so much more. To find out more, follow me on Instagram at Sarah underscore ND, or go to advancedwomenshealth.ca slash podcast to be the first to find out when they're released. Okay, so
0: before the break, we talked about different stages of sleep. And what we're going to do is just continue that thought for the moment and then look at how we can bring in some proactive measures to create a healthy sleep routine. So before the break, we were talking about stages three and four, Sarah. And if we can just continue on from that, because there's a really important mechanism, there's a really important role happening during stage four of sleep. And it's interestingly, here's another geeky fact. (laughs) Did you know that during this stage of sleep, that your brain actually shrinks by 60%? And so it actually does that for a really important reason. And that's because it wants to, the brain cells want to create a wide channel so that we can basically, the, during the night, little cleaners come in and they'll start cleaning between those brain cells. So they can they start to create these really wide channels. And it's because what happens is those channels during the day become a bit of a dumping ground for metabolic waste. And as all this builds up during the time, this large amount of waste is called beta amyloid. And it's really important, this factor, because large amounts of beta amyloid have been linked with Alzheimer's sufferers. So the waste that we create, um, if that's not moved away, then this waste creates a bit of a disruption between the neurons or the nerve cells and those connections. Um, And so as a result, it just makes the brain harder. It doesn't make it so easy for that natural um, connection and flow of movement between nerve cells and synapses to occur. And so really, if I can break down, because there's two really important cells, this is why it's really important to get into stage four because you've got these cells called microglial cells. And I've often said to clients, do you, do you, I don't know if you remember this, Sarah, do you remember Pac-Man, the old yeah. computer? Pac-Man? I always say to people, microglial cells are like Pac-Man. The people There's-
1: who do not understand that are not our people. No, we still love you, but you are young. You are young. <laughs> so little pac-man and just these little things that would
0: travel along and they will gobble up little bits of things as they went along and that's what microglials are they're they're gobbling up they're ingesting all that metabolic waste all that gunk that's been left there and then you've got something called astrocytes and they're pretty cool because what they do is they prune away those unnecessary connections or those synapses. And it's the astrocytes that help to keep refreshing, reshaping and help with the brain wiring basically. So remember I talked before the break about consolidating information and pruning and how like mindful somatic movements are really good at bedtime. It's good any time of the day, but specifically if you, if you want to create a good healthy sleep hygiene, it's good then because it's going to help to create a really healthy environment for when those astrocytes come in and they start to shape and change the wiring in your brain. So by the next morning, you've got this really nice fresh brain. You've got all that information from the night before that's been consolidated and you're ready to go for the day.
1: And this is where oftentimes we hear the word neuroplasticity. And for so long, we thought your brain was just fixed. And now we know that Literally anything can change. Um, There's even a man named Dale Bredesen, I think his name is. Um, He has a book on Alzheimer's and he talks about how you can do set things to reverse that Alzheimer's process. And so this, even in end stage fundamental disease, you can still make all these changes to your brain and sleep has such a huge impact on that it does
0: and i think what the big thing i find fascinating with um stage four um is that it's like a coma like state so it's the part where there's um there's this intense brain deactivation as it were we really kind of go we slow right down to allow all that cleaning to, to happen so it's probably the the time when we the nerve, the brain goes oh So can you imagine if we don't get into that intense coma like state into stage four, you can see how the brain just gets flogged, flogged, you know, and gets really worn out. So we really need to work hard at getting that stage four to kick in. Um, and then finally the the one that we may know is uh, rapid eye movement or REM sleep so that's stage five and that's where if you've got like your little babies bless them you can see their little eyes twitching around you know when they're fast asleep so there's a huge amount of processing going on then and the amount of energy and activity going on in the brain it's so so like awake it's the same amount as when we are awake basically it's so active there's so much going on and this is where REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep that's stage five is really important because that improves our procedural memory so that's our organization our order of everything that we know Um, and that's where things like with alzheimer's you can see that procedural memory disappears so again if you feel that you've you know i'm sure you and listeners and i know myself if we've not had a good sleep or if we're flying to the other side of the the world to see family Mm -hmm. in england that's a really good indication you can get a really good example of You know, it's a 24 hour flight from Australia to England or 23, but then you've got all the hanging around in the airport before. And then you, by the time you get home and you're chatting to everyone, but you just want to shower and you just want to go to sleep. So by that point, you actually feel drunk. It is like you feel drunk, and that's where you can see that whole procedural memory, the focus and the concentration's gone. Which is why, when in Australia, because it's such a massive country, you've got signs everywhere telling you to go and have mini sleeps and breaks because sleep deprivation is like being drunk. Mm-hmm. Every your reflexes slow down. You just don't remember things and recall things so efficiently. So it's it really sleep is one of those things that should be right at the top of our list for. A hundred percent.
1: And there's something now being researched called social jet lag, which is essentially, as we're going to talk about with the nighttime routine, not having one and sleeping really late some nights and sleeping in and you're having a schedule that's all over the map, um, that's now being researched as social jet lag and has huge impacts on our health because there's also a circadian rhythm to sleep. Your body does want to go to sleep at the same time. And if you go to sleep at two, 3 AM, you don't get the same benefits of sleep as if you went to sleep at 10 or 11. Um, and so, starting your bedtime that's one of the fundamental things of a nighttime routine is having a routine is starting it at the same time um because you get so many more benefits
0: and i think that's a classic example of how we are amazing because we can adapt and change all the time and that circadian rhythm is exactly that because like when we go to the other side of the world we have to change at the moment it's 10 and a half hours difference other times it's eight and a half but we have to it takes us it takes us around about seven or eight days to start especially when we come back to australia it's harder coming back actually um but it takes us that sort of time to transition and get the circadian rhythm into the right hemisphere basically in the northern hemisphere in that instance um and that's where you mentioned in the previous podcast because we're filming this over the christmas new year break how your little boy his circadian rhythm his whole routine was completely out of shot wasn't it because of holiday and family around and it is a sense of security that we feel and it's nice to have that routine so it's really strict being strict about when we go to bed sometimes working out what time have we got to wake up can we work back with our alarm and are we getting a decent amount of time
1: yeah and the amount of sleep is going to be dictated individually for sure but the idea that some people can get by on four or five hours sleep is just not a thing it's no. not a thing. The, like those people may get by in the short term, but in the long term, there are going to be repercussions of that. And that's because, as we've said, all these things happen during sleep. And you can't meditate for an hour and get back four hours of sleep. It's just, it's yeah. a different process. And these are things that I hear all of the time. This, oh, I relax or oh, I take a nap. And it's just, it's not the same. We need this prolonged period of sleep overnight. Um, and we also Like you said, you need some kind of routine to that, Um, which is also where I'll tell people, set an hour before you go to bed, start doing your nighttime routines. And so with that, that's going to be turning off blue lights right? Getting less blue light exposure. We have red lights all over our house because they don't make an impact. And especially for the baby, they're so sensitive. So even in his nursery, we don't have regular lights. We have red lights so that when we wake up in the night, he's not getting this cortisol response from the blue light in his eyes. So that's so important. Also making sure your bedrooms are nice and cool, which is hard for you right now. (laughs) Making sure that you are doing relaxing activities, you're not on your phone or watching scary movies right before bed, doing, Mm -hmm. like you said, gentle movement or a bath, doing these different things to kind of help calm the body down so that you're getting ready for sleep is so important. And
0: it is really important. And I just wanted to um,
1: rewind to something you mentioned because we often deal
0: with a lot of um, women in business as well. Mm -hmm. And um, there's so much out there about um, to be successful in business and to, you know, there's this whole, well, it's just an unhealthy mindset where it's like you need three or four hours of sleep so you can operate and do all these extra things actually that's not right and as we've learned in previous podcasts about the stress response and cortisol levels it's just not healthy so it is working out how many hours do you need to have to feel like you're functioning um efficiently the next day you know we all know you know we'll wake up the next day we'll see that day and again this is where that internal awareness is coming in where we notice how we tick as an individual How did we sleep? Was it good quality sleep last night? Was it restorative? Or did we feel that the dogs were barking next door and then kept us awake? Was it the little one crying throughout the night? We only know and we just have to gauge it day by day because every night and every sleep pattern will be different according to what that day's brought
1: and what happens during the night. And for me, like, I know I need eight to 10 hours of sleep. I have ever since I got mono the the second time. Well, I guess first, second time. my body just didn't recover the same way. I need more sleep. And with, so with that, like I, people will tell me, oh, okay, well, why don't you wake up at five? Why don't you wake up earlier to get things done? Because as an entrepreneur and a new mom, there's not enough hours in a day, but I know that the best thing I can do for myself is get that extra hour of sleep. And so that's just not something I can sacrifice because I'm so much more productive and get so much more out of my day when I'm well slept. But I'm going to say, Sarah, that there are
0: going to be people listening to this because I like eight hours is what suits me. And they'll go, cool. That's a luxury. I wish I could get that. I'm awake by three in the morning yeah, and I'll go to bed at 10 or go to bed at 11 and I'm only getting four or five hours. So realistically, what is actually happening
1: within to make that such a habit that they're waking up about three or four in the morning? It's shocking, isn't it? How people can wake up at like, 321 every single night, like it's the exact same time. And with that, I tend to say it's one of two different things. So at that period of time, your cortisol is changing. So it's dropping kind of at its lowest point and going up. And so with that response change, if you are having a lot of stress or cortisol changes, and again, this isn't just mental emotional stress, this can be inflammation, blood sugar imbalances is a huge thing at this time of day. Um, some kind of gut issue, that transition doesn't happen smoothly. And if your cortisol, this is what we think is happening, but if your cortisol is dropping too low, then that blood sugar imbalance that happens and that sense that cortisol is too low because it's so fundamental, causes a spike in norepinephrine and epinephrine, which can wake you up. And so oftentimes we do think it is a stress response that's waking you up and i'll ask people Do you wake up kind of like rolling around or do you wake up with a start like you're awake? And so many times women are like, oh no, no i'm awake and my mind is racing and I have lists of things I have to do and I can't fall back asleep, So I just end up getting up and I do that And so it's so much about Calming the body down, but I also find a tablespoon of nut butter which sounds so funny, can give them just enough fats and a little bit of carbs that can actually put you back to sleep. I can't tell you the number of women who would wake up at three or four and then think they were awake for the day. And they're like, oh, that's my natural cycle. And then they had some nut butter or they had uh, like there's sleepy time tea here, which is valerian and passion flower and some of my favorite like calming herbs have that. And then all of a sudden they fall back asleep into a nice deep sleep and they can sleep until seven or eight in the morning. Um, and so this is a really, really common pattern. The other thing I tell women though, is what you do all day really dictates this. So it's not just getting up at night and having some nut butter. It's okay. I have blood sugar imbalance working all day to correct that eating nutrient-dense meals, getting enough protein, getting enough fats with each meal. If it's the stress response, yes, herbs that I've talked about in the past, like Eleutherococcus and ashwagandha can be helpful, but it's also dealing with those perceived stresses. It's about setting boundaries at work and not taking all of your stuff home. It's really what you do all day dictates that quality of sleep at night.
0: And also I'd like to just bring out the choice of drinks, you know, cause we talk about food, but drink as well. So alcohol and coffee, you know, the caffeine yeah. side of things. And we've mentioned before about uppers and downers and things like that. But, you know, some people go, oh, I have a drink of alcohol at night cause it gets me off to sleep and you think, well, get you into a slumber, but then it dehydrates. And then you've got the liver that's having, the liver's having to work harder. It actually then wakes you up a bit, you know, in the early hours of the morning, doesn't it? So it's yeah. actually a bit of a false idea that that alcohol will get you off into sleep um, because it
1: actually starts to disrupt your sleep patterns again. The quality of sleep is absolutely not the same when you are consuming alcohol before bed versus not. And I have this cocktail um, that it's a supplement, but Oftentimes, I'll get women to take who are very used to the alcohol downer. Um, and so it's got things like GABA and theanine and something called inositol. They're all really calming compounds to the body. And it tastes like cherry. It's really delicious. And so I'll get women to drink that before bed because that actually relaxes their body to allow them to get into a deep sleep. And it's shocking the difference that they notice. And and also coffee, just mentioning about coffee, because of course, if if you're, um, we
0: talk about what happens in your day. So if you're the sort of person that's rising, say three or four, you're trying to lie there, but by 5.30, you know, if it's certain times of the year and you're hearing the birds twittering for the day, there can be nothing more nauseating than hearing that when you haven't had enough sleep. So often then people go, I just need, I, I can't function before I have a coffee in the morning. You know, sometimes it's the coffee before the breakfast. Um, and then it's also looking at how much coffee they're having throughout the day, how that, you know, they might think that they, they're calm, but internally there could be a lot going on with their cortisol really on that side of things.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I do drink coffee. I do love coffee. So I'm not going to say I don't, because that would be a big fat lie, but I can, I drink half-calf. That's all we have in our house because the caffeine is what does have an impact on me. And I can't drink caffeine after two in the afternoon. It's just, that will keep me up all night. And so it's also having an awareness about how much caffeine you're drinking, right? I don't think anyone needs more than two cups of coffee a day. It's just, and cups people, this is not like venti 20 ounce cup, like cup, a 250 ounce cup or milk cup um, is, is so important to kind of put that into perspective and to figure out what's working for your body and take a pulse. Like if I'm having a day where I'm anxious, I don't drink coffee, right? I don't need that extra response. Um, It's just an enjoyable part of my day that I have come accustomed to, but it's not about drinking it late at night. That's not helping anyone with their sleep. And if you are having sleep issues, you should probably have one when you wake up and not having any after that or experimenting without completely and seeing what happens. It's about what works for you. That's it.
0: And it is, it's that individual, isn't it? um, But what about if we consider some takeaway points for everybody at this point? Um, I was just going to dive in. If I can just mention it flows on a bit from when you were talking about the coffee, Mm -hmm. Um, but what's a really good sort of part of bedtime routine could be maybe having like a chamomile or a valerian tea. Mm -hmm. Um, Maybe if you've got an oil burner or diffuser, put in a bit of lavender or chamomile in that just to create that relaxing environment. And as you mentioned before, you know we want to prepare for bedtime so if we've got more of a relaxing environment we're, we're inhaling or we're ingesting through drink um those those herbal teas all that sort of things, really really effective and also um with the within our bedroom really with bedroom it's it's a taking out tvs and also um monitors you know all sorts of things phones because Uh, really with the bedroom, it should just be for two things, which we've mentioned in other things before, and that's sleep and sex, really. So it's those two, that's really the environment for it. So, taking all the other things out, which can disrupt. And, and of course, if we think about it, we what would we do with a baby? We wouldn't be putting a television or putting an iPad or any other device in front of a child before they go to bed. We'd just go, that's crazy. And yet that's what we do. And yet our brains are still being conditioned and trained to a routine like we would do with our babies. So again, it's thinking of that circadian rhythm. We want to create that rhythm and that flow. And so we stay consistent with that behavior like we do, do with children. And so, yeah, there's that routine coming through Um, and really just taking time to do some deep breaths before bedtime. And remember, I mentioned about mindful somatic slow movement. So that could be, again, just winding down the central nervous system, increasing the depth and quality of our breath to increase the oxygen into our tissues during the night and also to allow that pruning to happen. So those networks within our brain start to consolidate healthy mindful habits rather than it being like the news at 10 o'clock at night and the last image Mm -hmm. that we have is some war-torn zone or some really horrific thing which gets then planted into our subconscious so when we go to sleep our subconscious mind is mulling over some really distressing images and as we know as humans images are something that when it when it's there and it's imprinted in our subconscious it's very hard to get rid of them
1: so it's creating a healthy environment from the inside out Absolutely. And I would say like my takeaways, they all play off of each other, but it's so key to think about what you're doing before bed from a hormonal perspective as well. Right? So how long you're going without eating before bed is something that's really important for an individual to consider. You also need to consider, if you're getting blue light exposure in your eyes, you're not getting the hormone melatonin created. Melatonin is the sleep hormone. Oftentimes people think of taking it as a supplement, but you really need to be making it yourself. That's It's so key for things like, cell, like oxidative stress, which is kind of like cellular rusting. It's really important for aging. It's really important for hormonal health, all of these things. So if you're getting that blue light exposure in your eyes, it's, it has a huge impact. I know when I first met my husband, he had a TV in his room and I was like, ah, no, 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 that is not happening. And he would have the audacity when I was trying to sleep to try to watch TV because he wasn't sleepy. No, 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 We now have no TVs in our room and never will because melatonin is so important. Speaking of hormones as well, another takeaway is that if you're not getting that good quality sleep, It is really hard to reset your hormones. You're going to feel more hungry. You're going to be sleepy. You're going to have cortisol issues and potentially inflammation issues. And so sleep is so personal and there's so many things that could go wrong at each stage that don't hesitate to seek out help from someone to work on that because it's fundamental to everything we're talking about.
0: Absolutely. And that's exactly it. And and it's being realistic knowing that different times, as I mentioned before, life will be busy, we will be sleep deprived, but it's then what we can do to recover from it. So that we can see through our entire lifetime, how important sleep is from when we're babies, to when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, the whole lot at different points, there's various things that happen. But as long as we keep a routine, Um, and if we do wake in the night the last thing we want to do is start reaching for mobile phones or whatever Mm -hmm. devices they are even putting the light on to read you hear people do that but as we said before as soon as that light hits the back of your eye your melatonin levels drop don't they because you think it's day you know your brain just thinks that's happening so we need to shift and change things absolutely absolutely wonderful so with that um i think should we close this up and then look forward to discussing the next subject which is all about connection and passion and we're going to look at how we can create time for ourselves and look for opportunities so if we're feeling a bit stagnant in our decisions in life what we can do to shift and change those
1: amazing can't wait look forward to it
0: thank you for joining us today To learn more, go to reallywellwomen.com and connect with us. Also spread the word so we can increase the feeling of Really Well Women all around the world. So until next time, take care.